Hello everyone, sorry about the noise, uh, the volume issue. Okay, welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Uh, thank you so much, so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm Tracy Siska, your host, and also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Pro Project. Um, so today we're gonna be talking about the FOPP's uh, president's basis taking and the shooting of Adam Talib. We're also gonna be, or Toledo, sorry. Sorry about that. Low-level uh, low offenders. There's a new study out and in, in an editorial by the Sun-Times about it. Um, it's going to be really interesting. We're going to talk about the city council's moral failings, a column by Neil, Neil Seinberg. Um, they have many moral failings. The, uh, we're going to talk about our coverage of weekend gun violence media coverage. How do the outlets cover it? How do they change from week to week? What are they considering the weekend? How are they defining it? What resources are they putting into covering it? It's very interesting. It's a new thing on our website. We'll talk a little more about that. We're going to give you updates um, on two FOIA suits that we have ongoing between um, the Chicago Police Department and the Cook County State Attorney's Office. And then at last, we're going to talk about politician, uh, a politician. A politician, being a politician in the best possible way, complaining but never offering a plan or a solution. You'll know him. He's been on this show. Okay, so before we get to that, I want to talk to you about our CJP Nation. This is a where our volunteers and interns come together. We now have 150 people working with the Chicago Justice Pro. And so what do they do? Crowdsource research project, public policy advocacy, social media ambassadorships, and digital activism. All of that. The reason I'm bringing it up, you'll see uh, hopefully soon, uh, you'll see uh, the Zoom link posted in the chats. That Zoom link tonight, I believe it's 7 p.m. Central, we have our weekly strategy meetings, and you can come learn about the projects and join one if you're interested. Okay, and before we get to our next segment, real quick, a week from tonight, starting April 14th, on the 14th, I think at 7 p.m., our first town hall. Rape, uh, it's on um, reimagining a new paradigm on rape kit tra transparency. Um, our guests for that are, well, first of all, moderator is Allison Bowman. Uh, Bowen, I'm sorry, moderating. She's a journalist at the Chicago Tribune and she's um, written on this topic many times. And then we're going to, panelists include Maria Bellata from Resilience, Ilse Connect from the Joy Hart Foundation and Donna Piler from the Guardian Angel Community Services. So that'll be on the 14th. Um, so our usual Wednesday sh show a week from today will be starting a little later, about an hour and a half later to, so we can do the town hall. Okay, here's our first segment. FOP President's Baseless Take on Shootings. Okay, we are going to uh, play you some clips and then we're going to I'm going to play a clip talk about it play a clip talk about it it's really quite 
an amazing video. This comes from his, or not his, but the FOP Friday update, they call it. And it's on their YouTube channel. We've been monitoring them and we're going to bring it to you anytime there's something interesting. And this one definitely is. It's mostly about the, the shooting of Adam uh, Toledo. What I want you to listen to and think about when you're, when you're listening to the clip and you're watching, think about what facts does he have to make the statement he's making, okay? So here's the first clip, and then we'll come back and talk about it. All right, good afternoon. Friday usual update here. Today's topic's gonna be a little more heavy and intense in light of situations that happened this week. You know, it's pretty well known that tragically, a member of Lodge 7 CPD was forced to shoot a 13-year-old offender this week, killing him. There is now political footballs being tossed around, emotions, and, and sadly, uh, you know, the family's getting dragged into this conversation. Our heartfelt condolences go out to the family. Um, it is a tragedy. It's sad, no matter how you even try and approach this topic, to think that such a young life ended so violently. But the reality is this, and facts do matter. There's calls for uh, answers and for justice. We have no problem with a call for answers. A call for answers just is that. It explains what happened. But a call for justice indicates that there was something wrong that was done. That is not a good default position to start from. But far too often, politicians and news media that's absolutely where they start every single time because it sensationalizes a story and it gives them an opportunity for the news media specifically to garner viewership for political reasons. They think that they're going to solidify a narrative or a base for their own gain. And it's sad because our members are quite often thrown under the bus. Well, I was there that morning after the shooting occurred. And I can tell you, the officer was absolutely shaken by the circumstances of which happened that night because a life was taken but it was justified Okay, so what do we get from that clip? We get that he wants a default a belief system, right? The default will automatically go to, if the cop says this happened, then it obviously happened. Don't doubt it. Is If the cop said it happened, it automatically happened. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what in their history has earn them that credibility as an institution, not as individuals, like individuals you know that are officers. We all know good ones. We all know some probably ones that shouldn't be cops. But what is an institution? Laquan McDonald, John Burge, Austin 10, SOS, Joseph Majanowski. You can go on and on and on and on. 
right? What is given them? I don't understand what they've earned. He talks about facts matter. And he talks about the shooting being justified. How does he know? How does he know? I checked with sources. The head of the FOP, the president, he hasn't seen the video. He wouldn't see this body cam video that we're all waiting to see. It's been the controversy. He hasn't seen it. So he is most likely just taking the officer's version for granted in stone. Absolutely true no matter what. It's the same guy I thought the Quan McDonald shooting was okay. And we'll get to some of these other things later, but that he's done. Right? But he just wants this to be, that's the way it is. Just believe the cops all the time. Not a great, um, not a great way to think about how to make sure that officers are doing the very best job they can on the streets. And this responsibility the criminal justice system has on it uh, placed on it by our Constitution to force them to prove someone beyond a, uh, a reasonable doubt for to be guilty. Everything they do must be scrutinized. It doesn't mean that you believe they're lying all the time, but it's you just don't trust what people say. You're like, okay, but prove it. That sounds a, probably pretty correct, but can you please prove it for us? Um, you just don't outright buy it. This is what he's done. So we're going to go to clip two, and I'll come back and talk about that one a bit. The offender was fleeing from the police with a weapon. It's irregardless that he was 13 years old. Age does not matter. He was running away from the police. And at the time he was shot, he was not shot in the back. He had turned to face the police officer who was chasing him. That's why he was shot from the front one time the gun was recovered on scene pretty close proximity to where he fell that's just the reality of this there was absolutely nothing wrong with the actions the officer took that night and i just wish the superintendent the mayor and even the the news media would quit trying to even give any of this narrative any breathing room whatsoever the mayor and the superintendent have seen this video, I guarantee you. And if they haven't, shame on them. But the video is pretty clear on what happened. Again, simultaneously, whether he was intending to give up, which I know is going to be the narrative that he was trying to surrender, the officer does not have to wait to be fired upon before firing. There is no obligation in our duties, which seemed to be the mindset last summer with the riots, that we had to subject ourselves to certain behavior before we could take action. That's not true. It's never been true, nor will it ever be true, but some people in Springfield might want to try and make that the reality. However, it's not. And the officer's actions, though tragic and difficult to comprehend, were absolutely justified and accurate. So I just want to put that out there right now. Again, this isn't to disparage the family or to, to make a bad situation worse, but we are forced now to address this topic because other people are trying to use it for gain. I just wanted to let the officer know and anybody else involved in that situation or anything like that, we will always defend your actions when they're justified. And we feel this is 100% justified.
So, President Katanzara, great comments. You say in there, hey, it's pretty clear from what happened, from the video, what happened. My question is, how do you know? How do you know what happened? You haven't seen the video. It wouldn't be protocol for you to see the video, the body cam video. How have you seen it? Or are you just relying on what everyone's telling you at the scene? When you hear things like the blue wall of silence and that type of thing, this is it. This is what you get, right? This is officers um, just covering up for other officers no matter what. Listen, the shooting was horrific. I don't automatically go, no matter who the police have shot, to the fact that the police are automatically wrong. And it's an automatically an unjustified shooting. I automatically go to, I don't want there to be any police shootings. I want to reduce them to, I want to do everything we can to reduce them as much as humanly possible for the civilians that are shot or shot at and for the officers that are shot or shot at or doing the shooting. I want to reduce them. I want to find ways to stop having cops show up to certain things. I want to make sure they're the best trained they possibly can be. Um, but you're not going to get there if you just... Your default position is cover up everything. Cover up. You're not going to get there. I want you to, I want to get there, but we're not going to get there if it's just cover up everything or take the cop's word for it without having to look for proof. Excuse me. The other part that came up. The gun was recovered pretty close proximity to where he fell. Huh. President Katanzara, can you um, define what pretty close means? I mean, I don't think we have a lot of information. There's some saying he had a gun. There seems to be some confusion about whether he did or not have a gun. Did he turn and aim it at the person? If he turned and aim it and got shot in the chest with like, I think a 38 or 45 or what they carry. He's a small 13-year-old kid. He's going to drop. And that's just saying he walked for meters away. How close was the gun? How far away was it? Why? How could it have possibly gotten to where it was? Maybe there's a legitimate answer to that. But that seems pretty um, ambiguous at this time. Once again, I think he's just taking the officer's word for it. That's not something we're going to do. And it's something he probably shouldn't do either. Because his job is really not to just represent that one officer, but the other 12 or 13 or 10,000, because they only represent the patrol officers and the detectives, 10,000 or so officers, whatever the exact number is. Um, it isn't just about that, um, that one officer. So we're going to go on to our third clip here from this uh, Friday update from the FOP. This one's a little longer, um, but it's talking about comparing crime statistics and if you were with us on monday you will see this is the same issue the media has and we talked about it on monday um but before i rant about it i'm going to show you and then we will come back and discuss uh that being said let's move on there's a bill in springfield we want to talk about violence let's look at the numbers for 2020 to 2021 2020 was an extremely violent year compared to 19 and we're already outpacing the numbers from 2020, just to give you a little example. I mean, we're looking at a 43% increase in shootings this year from last year's ridiculous numbers and over 33% in homicides. So that just goes to show you what we're looking at. That's not even talking about carjackings, which quite often, 
Again, everybody saw the video, I believe it was in New York, where the Uber Eats driver was carjacked by a 13 and a 15 year old girl, if I'm not mistaken, where he tragically lost his life because he didn't want to give up the car, which I don't blame him. Um, but it's just a mindset in society today that people can do whatever they want, regardless of age. Um, a perfect, another argument people make is even offenders running away from the police. Well, you shouldn't shoot him in the back. You can't, the 3653 originally said you couldn't taser somebody in the back. They're trying to re unwind that because many people saw the video for the Home Depot shooting. That offender literally reached back and shot the security guard who was behind him. So people need to stop with this nonsense. Every situation is unique. It needs to be addressed as that and facts need to be absorbed and explained before emotions take over just for somebody to try and get a leg up on whatever their agenda is. Um, but back to the, the crime numbers. I, I gave you the increases. Let's, let's explain how that parlays into reality here. Bill 1727 that Representative Tarver put forth about and came out of committee that would eliminate qualified immunity as a defense for officers in state court. It would also put officers on the hook for attorney's fees. Um, and this is an attack on police. There's no other way to slice it up. But let's look at the four co-sponsors of that bill. Representative Tarver, uh, Flowers, Buckner, and Collins. Here's the numbers. So Tarver's district, representation-wise, is pretty much the 2nd District, the 4th District, the 6th District a little bit. Um, and let's look at some numbers in those police districts. Now, these four sponsors are literally representing some of the most violent neighborhoods in this city. But they're attacking the police nonetheless because it distracts from their failures as leaders. And Flowers specifically has been in office for a couple decades and has done absolutely nothing to make the neighborhood that she represents any safer. But let's start with the number in Tarver's districts. In 2020, violent crime reported. And violent crime is aggravated battery, homicides, rapes, robberies, uh, and such. Over 1,060 were reported in 2020 in Representative Tarver's district. Uh, in this year, that was last year, and he's pretty much on pace to break that. Right now, they're at 291 through March 30th. Representative Flor Flowers, who represents part of the 6th District, the 8th District, and then goes into the Southwest Burbs. Literally, Chicago, the portion of her district in Chicago is a little bit of 6, the western end of 6, and then the southern end of 8th District, and then it goes into the Burbs. But even that small sliver of Chicago that she represents had over 1,035, I believe it is, violent crime reports in 2020, and over 260 this year and counting. Representative Buckner, his districts are all the lakefront districts, all the way up into the 18th district, 1st district, 2nd, and so on, down the road. Um, his numbers are ridiculous. 2,780-plus 2, uh, violent crime reports in 2020, with over 540 already this year and counting. And as egregious as that number is, or I shouldn't say that, hold on, I'm sorry, that was Representative Collins's, who is the... 10, the south end of 10 and uh, the north end of 10 to south end of 11. That's where she represents. Buckner's along the lakefront was over 1,800 uh, violent crime reports and over 500 this year. So again, these people who are trying to champion, and yes, I'm using notes for a change because it's hard to remember all of these numbers exactly, 
But that being said, there is a clear attack on the law enforcement profession. The defund the police movement and that slogan ended up being a disaster in the elections in November, and the Democrats have realized that. So I firmly believe that all of these new uh, bills that are being championed, uh, discussed, and even proposed or passed is an attempt to make law enforcement a profession that nobody wants to do anymore. And if you lose thousands of officers, specifically in Chicago, you will, by default, you know, defund the police because if you have a police force of 9,000 because nobody wants the job, well, the budget's going to shrink and they could take that money and do something else with it. All right. So he does and exploits the same thing that is being exploited by the media in Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. It's invalid, improper, and exploitive to try to compare crime numbers and violence numbers in any major city, pretty much anywhere in the country, if not everywhere in the country. Numbers in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic to any other year in the past or forever in the future, unless another worldwide pandemic hits. And let's hope it's a long time before that comes back. We're not even done with the, the one we're in. You cannot comp compare these numbers. As I said on Monday in previous shows, this is a epic worldwide event throwing tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world into economic, health, and housing insecurity all at the same time amidst a worldwide pandemic of a um, airborne virus that can kill you and, is, and has killed, at this point now, over 550,000 Americans. That alone, not even all the 190-some countries. How many have died worldwide from this? You cannot compare the numbers. So he's talking about 2021. Oh, my God, look how much worse it is now than 2020 in the beginning of 2020. Yeah, because the pandemic hadn't set in yet, my friend. Those numbers are invalid. Now, Katanzara there, Mr. FOP president, would be arguing the same thing I did if, he, if the police department actually got held to account for violence and crime numbers. They're supposed to be um, preventing it, aren't they? What the hell are they doing? Why aren't these numbers being turned on them and saying, you aren't doing your job, police department, police union. What the hell are you doing? This is your fault. You see, they're trying to flip it and make it politicians' fault now to some extent. It actually is politicians' fault. But no one could have prepared for this. In cities that already hit issues, and almost all urban centers have issues with crime and violence, there were going to be, those were going to be heightened under what we've experienced. He's trying to exploit it for political points. It's an incredibly conservative, inc incredibly Trumpian perspective. Now, I'm going to give you a little insight into President Katanzara, if you haven't already seen it on our show, he is currently stripped of his police powers and cannot. He's no longer a police officer, basically. He's got a case 
maybe two cases now, or they may have merged it and filed additional charges in front of the Chicago Police Board. The police department is trying to fire him for the second, third, fourth time. He served multiple suspensions. He has 50 complaints against him, 50 individual complaints. Some of them have multiple counts for various things, but 50 individual major complaints against him. Mostly, ladies and gentlemen, internal. Now think about the blue wall of silence. Think how hard it is to get one cop to turn on another. He's had it almost 50 times and served multiple suspensions during that time. It's an unbelievable to get criticism. Like this guy thinks he's credible on something. And I'm going to show you something else. I want to show you this. Yep. That's Mr. FOP president. Mr. FOP president, I think this is on January 7th. If I got those, if they got the date right, if I can read it right. He defended those that stormed the Capitol a mile from me, because I'm coming to you from D.C., a mile from me. He defended the people that stormed the Capitol, killed five people, killed one police officer. No, actually, I think a couple police officers died. He defended them. Now, he's had to since come out after, like, the city blew up and Alderman were calling for his resignation. We got the token. Oh, I was so sorry. I didn't mean it. I didn't know they had committed violence. Who could look at even the first five minutes of that and think anything that was done there was okay? But this is the mentality. This is the political uh, leanings of Mr. Catanzara, the guy who's sitting there with almost probably no facts that are verifiable. And the only really verifiable thing is probably going to be the body camera. That's going to be the most independent take on what happened. He hasn't seen it yet. He's just trusting the cop. Why? Because this is his way of thinking. Although, for instance, it's interesting that he didn't seem to care that they had killed a um, a, uh, a Capitol Police officer that day. That didn't seem to um, bother him. Okay, so we're going to move on to our second segment today. Get off Mr. Catanzaro. Uh, actually, before I get off that, I'm going to say one last thing. I'm starting to get that queasy feeling that this body cam footage may not show what Mr. Catanzaro and the Chicago Police Department and Mayor Lightfoot thinks it does. They're like interesting language they have used on whether or not Adam Toledo had a gun or the gentleman he was with had a gun um, in a way that's kind of getting tossed around and trying to deflect. I'm, I'm a little worried that this video is going to come out and not show what um, the department's hoping it's going to show. So anyways, on to the second segment. So we're going to talk about, I think, an op-ed... Yeah, it's an editorial in the Sun-Times. It's not an, it's an editorial in the Sun-Times. The, the title is Another Good Argument for Dealing with Low-Level, Nonviolent Offenders in a Smarter Way. And I'll do something I don't often do. I'm going to agree with the Sun-Times edit editorial board. There's a recent report came out published uh, by the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, and I know about it because my wife's a PhD health economist, so I'm very familiar, and she published recently an NBER report. Now, this is not peer-reviewed, so I just want to give you that caveat. These are usually 
um, papers that are in the working process that are going to be submitted for peer review, but they're looking to get comments from scholars. The only people allowed to publish them um, are senior senior researchers that have a, um, a significant history of peer-reviewed um, peer-reviewed writing. So there's a little trust built up into them and that it will be high quality research. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it is that. But what they did is they basically said, they basically found these researchers. I think they, they looked at 15 years of data. And I think this was in Boston, but don't quote me on that. Um, they looked and basically saw that low-level offenders who were not prosecuted were less likely to reoffend than those that were prosecuted. Now, what does this mean for the for for defunding the police and um, re um, reallocating funds for the criminal justice system, whether it is the prosecutors, the courts, the jails, the police, all of it? Well, nationally, more than eighty percent of all criminal cases that proceed into the justice system are misdemeanors. And I agree with the Sun-Times editorial board that does steal massive, massive amounts of police time in dealing with them. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe if we have 15, an analysis of 15 years of data that's showing us that those results, if and when this gets peer-reviewed, that's got to be replicated immediately. That is a massive finding. And that's just proves to us it is time to, to defund or redistribute it um, and also bring in a crisis response system, bring in an alternative response system um, like CAHOOTS in Eugene, Oregon, um, so that calls that don't require a person with a gun to show up go to crisis responders and not armed officers who don't need to be bothered by these things. Now, there's initiative that's testing this. I think kind of an experiment with it, I think since 2018, but I think it only has to do with drugs. Now, as I mentioned earlier about our nation meetings, one such nation project is studying the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, Tim and Ebony from the CAHOOTS program were on the show earlier about late last year, I believe. So you can look that up if you want to learn more. One of, the, one of our groups in the nation is studying what it, how CAHOOTS operates, how it's been replicated around the country, Rochester, New York, I think San Diego. I know Denver, just they just published and... Um, there was just an NPR story about the six-month experiment with it there and how well it went and how it's going to be expanded. We need to do this, especially if these numbers hold up through peer review. That is an amazing finding. And it's time to get police out of a lot of things and send um, a better response, a cheaper response, a less armed response, and one that may have um, better long-term outcomes. Now, people say, oh, my God, you're going to talk about getting rid of police. I'm not. And I'm not even talking about not sending them that everything we think 
may or has a good probability of containing violence or has had already a violence as part of it. At least no one I'm working with is saying that. But from that threshold down to the simplest of calls is a huge number, right? And you can bet right now many, 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 very high percentage of those 80% of misdemeanors have no violence in them. We're working on a study now with tens of millions of calls from the Office of Emergency Management and Communication, OEMC, what are called police calls for service. What do people call 911 for? 911 for we have it. We have them going back to 1999. We're working on a study going to um, ferret out how many calls that go to the CPD by district, by year, are for violence or have a high likelihood of violence occurring and how many don't. And that's going to be the basis for our work with our work from the nation group on cahoots about pushing for some alternative response. But we're going to use it. We're going to push for that using facts. Want to be part of that research? Join us tonight. The link for our Zoom meeting is in the chats. You can join us tonight at 7. Check out what the groups are about. Um, there's a bunch of other uh, groups made up in the nation that are doing research. Uh, maybe you can jump on another project. Okay. Segment three. I don't like this guy. This, not Trump, because I don't like him, but this is a column by Neil Steinberg. I am not a fan, ladies and gentlemen. Never have been. I've never quoted him um, unless it's to um, critique his work. I've never, ever quoted him. But I'm about to do that today. Not so much because I want to talk about this. Um, he frames this moral failure in the terms of the city council failing to or only agreeing to a very watered down. Um, it's not an ordinance. Um, it's something weaker than that that escapes me right now. Resolution. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a resolution. Watered down resolution criticizing India for the way they're treating Muslims. Okay, I'm not going to go down that road, but I am going to go down the road um, on a moral failure because I agree with him. It's the epicenter of moral failure and uh, ineptitude. Both him, I mean the city council and the mayor's office are both epic moral failures on a daily basis. Doesn't mean every alderman, doesn't mean, no, it means just about every mayor, I'm sure, um, has been an epic moral failure, especially on our issue. Crime, justice, accountability, transparency. Epic, epic failures. Um, he cites in the report, in his column, he cites a report we did some years ago looking at an analysis of several years of agenda items from what at that time was called the Police and Fire Committee of the Chicago City Council. And he talks about how they are just utterly useless and they do nothing to oversee the police or the police accountability system. And you know what? He's right. And I was right when we did it. And um, he's right. That is what I'm talking about, moral failure. The city council has the legal obligation to use their powers to oversee the work of the city council and the, um, I mean, to oversee the work of the police department, the police accountability system. And they have abdicated that responsibility, left and right, year after year after year after year after year. That is all they do. Rinse, repeat. 
That is all they do. That is why we are almost seven, we're approaching 730 days in the Lightfoot administration and we still don't have a community commission. Even though she said she'd get it in the first 100 days, even though it was started Let's see, she was elected in 18, right? No, two years. 19 is when she took office. She was elected in 19, even though that community commission was being pushed by communities three years before she came into office. Five years later, we still don't have it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in one minute to talk about uh, some CJP um, work, media weekend media coverage and some of our FOIA work, and then we're going to talk about that politician to end it. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. All right, we are back. So in this segment, I want to talk about a new project we have. It's been ongoing for several weeks now. And it's basically our weekend. It's a, it's a gets posted late on Mondays. And it's basically our, um, our beginning analysis of weekend media coverage of gun violence that occurs over the weekend. Why we're doing this is that the media in Chicago, and when I say that, we're talking about the Tribune, the Sun-Times, Channel 2, 5, 7, 9, and Fox. Just those seven outlets. We look at those seven outlets and we analyze every weekend. How many stories do they do? What are they about? Are they doing them? Are they picking up wire stories? How are they defining the weekend? Now that sounds like a kind of a weird thing to do, but this has been a problem with, um, this has been a problem for a long time with the media. They have, especially on holiday weekends, because, you know, we shift days. <laughs> it isn't the same day every year, the 4th of July, or right? They shift or alter or change depending on when the day off is and everything the definition of a weekend so some weekends may have three days some may have four it all depends now that's a huge problem because what the media then does is they're like well this fourth of july weekend it had so much more violence than last one well, that's interesting because there are 24 hours more in this weekend than last one that you included or two years ago or four years ago or five. If you're not going to keep consistency, you cannot under any circumstances compare year to year. And honestly, the year to year comparisons for the most part are bogus. But don't tell the media that. They love doing them. They will be 
lost if they can't do their canned media stories um, about this 4th of July or this Memorial Day or Labor Day or New Year's weekend or Christmas weekend, uh, Martin Luther King weekend. It's, you got more or less violence. They have to be able to do that. Um, we're taking our, this is our crack at starting this analysis. It's not, you know, is it the best thing that's ever hit uh, the sky? Absolutely not, but we're working on it. If you read it and you've got ideas and suggestions for things you'd want to see, we're open to it. But I really think we're off to a good start with this and weekend media coverage. Um, we hope to expand it, but it's going to take time. And it's also going to take time. I would love to get data on three, four, or five years of every weekend covered. And we're going to look at how the that changes over time and by the seasons and weather patterns. There's all kinds of different ways of doing it. This is our start of it. Um, we hope you like it. Okay, segment number five. We're gonna give you some updates on ongoing FOIA litigation. Um, let's see, first one, Chicago Police Department. So now this post, there's a post on our website now that will, um, that will give you a, it's basically a running blog and it'll give you updates on the litigation. Now, why is that important? Well, for one thing, the Chicago Police Department is, we are entering the third birthday of our lawsuit. Third. Third. They don't want to give up their data, period. They're fighting like cats and dogs to stop us from getting their data. They're just refusing. It's the most ridiculous lawsuit in the world. It is wasting taxpayer money like you can't believe. Our lawyers are pro bono. Uh, thank the Lord for, um, in this case, it's Lovi and Lovi. Merrick, Merrick, um, Merrick Wayne, Matt Topic kicking butt over there at Lovi for us. You know, we're winning. We're racking up victories in this. And um, the CPD is still fighting it like crazy. Um, and you'll see it that the first real blog entry is a recent victory in court, which is we served the CPD our first discovery request. So it's a set of interrogatories and some discovery requests mixed in. And it's going to be um, it's going to be really interesting to see what they produce as part of that. Um, what I think you're going to get is them kicking and screaming the whole way and delaying as long as possible because three years hasn't been long enough. Um, we have them looking for an analysis. Uh, part of what's still open is that analysis they told the city council they did related to the thousand man hire that Rahm announced September 22nd, I think of 2016. Remember that? Well, they went and told the city council and the Sun-Times, we did a top to bottom analysis. We know exactly how many officers they need. They've already whiffed three times at providing that to us. I'm sorry. They whiffed um, twice and then they t tried to get the court to um, not force them to look anymore and they lost that. And um, so they're still looking for that, which is mind boggling. And um, they're also looking, we have a police call, we have a call for service issue out that's still going. So calls for service are 911 calls. The police department, the CPD, grabs those calls that date the metadata on those calls from the office of emergency management communications every year and stores it in their in their uh, warehouses because OEMC deletes that data four years to the day every day unbelievable so the CPD has it in their um, 
and their data warehouses. We wanted data back to night from like two, 1999 to 2016. I think it may have been 17. And in their unbelievable ways, for the first nine years or so of our, our request, they did provide us data. 13% of what they say in their annual reports during those years from 1999 to like 2007 or 8. 13% of the calls that are in the annual reports, if you add them up, 13%. They can't tell us why. They have no idea. And then in the other uh, nine years, I think it is, they provided us on average 145% of the calls. One year, 198% of the calls. Just, I mean, how do you get 198% of something? How do you average 145% of something? Only in Chicago, only in FOIAs could you get that. It's so ridiculous. So that's one of our lawsuits. The second um, lawsuit that's ongoing here is the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. We filed, this is our second lawsuit against Kim Fox. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's our second lawsuit against the office. We sued Anita Alvarez. I think it was in 2015. Kim settled in mid, early to mid 2017. I think they, they, we came to an agreement in like March or April or something like that. And then in the summers when they actually provided the data, they withheld it to just about the time that they published their own dashboard. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't on purpose. Um, but we have a lawsuit. Um, they broke that settlement agreement that they settled with us. Unbelievable. I know it is. They, um, and they forced us. We filed new FOIAs and we saw the old FOIAs because they didn't give us the data in the right format. Um, and they just refused to honor the old agreement. They refused to honor any new FOIAs. It's a clown show over there for sure. Um, for an office that is responsible for prosecuting people for life and death crimes, they are so unbelievably incompetent on some things. And FOIA is definitely one. It's laughable. Um, so in that update that we're gonna have a running update of that litigation, and the first post in that one is that we won a, um, basically a discovery issue. They, the, CP, the state's attorney's office moved to dismiss. They were going to try to dismiss the whole case. They couldn't. They could only, they were only allowed to file a motion to dismiss on the um, old issues around the settlement agreement. They did that. They were able to file that motion. I think it's going to be heard in May, um, but the judge didn't allow them to file a motion to dismiss on the current and most active ones that aren't part of the first litigation. And she also authorized the uh, serving of discovery requests on the state's attorneys. So we um, sent in several pages of discovery requests and interrogatories. So we will be getting, um, well, I shouldn't say that. We should be getting under the law <laughs> answers to those. Um, and one of the big sticking points is they're telling us, believe it or not, that it's too difficult to export data from their database and that their database only, a Microsoft database that I think they spent around $3 million on back in 2005, it only exports in one single format, one. And that's Microsoft SQL Server, a proprietary format that is incredibly hard to open up. Um, if you're using open source technologies. We don't believe that's true, and I'm sure our discovery is gonna prove that that's untrue. We'll see if that makes a difference and whether these things get settled quickly, 
But both those blogs are going to be running, and we will be coming back to you on the show and letting you know when they're updated. Okay, so our final segment tonight. Politicians acting like politicians. One thing you can guarantee, there's never a shortage of machine-hired, machine-blessed politicians or even machine-like politicians who will exploit anything they possibly can to score political points no matter how detrimental those criticisms are to society. There's never an ending. So let's talk about someone who, by the way, I think took ninth in our last mayoral election. So, I mean, he was right on the cusp of like, you know, being very, very far away from eighth place. That's an incredible spot to be eighth place in a mayor's race. Paul Vallis, ex-CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. He was on the show much earlier in the summer uh, talking about city finances. I'm going to try to get him back on to talk about the, the crapola he puts out on shootings. He is, I mean, I got, I, I, sometimes I think him and, um, Bob Fioretti either switch places or they're the same person with different with masks on because, God, they both like to complain about something, but they do not ever have a solution. So here's Paul Vallis, and if you're listening in the podcast version, I'm going to read the post. Another mass shooting in Chicago. Seven shot in Inglewood last night. Over 70 in- incidents of multiple people shot in Chicago this year. Another child, a 21-year-old, shot downtown in broad daylight. Oh, my God. Why are these shootings not drawing the attention of our elected officials? That's a complaint, Paul. You're a politician exploiting violence to try to get points. I'm shocked. Shocked. I mean, does a day go by when someone in Chicago doesn't try to exploit the violence? You took ninth in the mayor's race. That's how well-liked you are in Chicago. It might help if you stopped complaining and started putting forth plans that you could be held to account if they were horrible. One, we, we did a, a, a segment on a show a couple weeks ago about Paul. He, he put a plan out on, on, on social media, Facebook and Twitter, about the need to create a... The city needs to create an... Um, a city-run um, witness protect. Excuse me. Excuse me. A witness protection program. Think about that one. And he said in the post, which was startling, that it's not the fact that people don't trust the police in communities where they don't cooperate with the police. It's that they're just scared. It has nothing to do with the police behavior. How much whiter can Paul get that he is oblivious to the impact that John Burge had on communities of color? That he was oblivious to the impact of the Laquan McDonald case. He was oblivious to the impact of the SOS scandal, special operations scandal, that was kidnapping black and brown people just off the street and robbing them. 
How oblivious do you have to be? Well, pretty oblivious. So when that plan got kind of ridiculed by me and others, Paula's back to being a politician, exploiting crime and violence for political points. It's sad, but this is Chicago, right? I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said it, it got quoted in the White House, never let a scandal go to waste. There's always a way to exploit it for your purposes. I mean, that is, that if all the things that are the Chicago way, that is the Chicago way. There's no doubt. Um, it's sad. Uh, we'll be featuring, I'm sure we'll be featuring his Facebook and Twitter posts um, more often. They're sad. They're kind of funny. Um, they remind me a lot of Fioretti. Fioretti's kind of fallen off. He's good every Sunday or Monday morning for a post about the violence too without ever putting a plan together. Because that's how you run for office. You don't have plans. You just have uh, vague complaints that you're going to do something and then never do it. Okay. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. We'll be back on Friday at 5.30. Remember, in the chats on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, you can get the Zoom link to our meeting tonight at 7 p.m. Central The Nation. Come be a part of it. 150 people that are involved cannot be wrong. Hope we see you tonight. I will see you Friday at 530 Central. Thanks again.